Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music. Hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and radio host Emily Reese. This is part two of a two-part crash course about beer and eras in classical music. Check out patreon.com slash scores and pours for a full playlist and a wine list and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Good day, Emily Reese. Hello, Jill Mont. Crash Course Part 2? Part due, as they would say in Italy. Actually, probably the part word is different. Part di. Part <laughs> Parte dos. Dos. Uh, thanks to Emily Reese. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For those of you who have listened to Crash Course Part 1, uh, you know that we dissected the difference between Crash Course beer, difference between lagers and ales. Mm -hmm. We tasted them, talked about them, and then we did Crash Course in eras of classical, the three probably most popular eras of classical music. More or less. That's, yes. Right? Yeah. Maybe? Baroque era, classical era, romantic era. We went through, we broke down basics of them so people could, when they're listening to the radio or they're, you know, reading and they say, this is a Baroque style, people will Mm -hmm. know what the hell they're talking what about. What that means. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and Emily had, had I don't know if undies and a bundy, that's not the right, <laughs> <laughs> that's not the right choice of words, but in our heated discussion, Emily was like, I can't do this all in an hour. This is too much. <laughs> it's too much. It's so way th- too much to condense. It's it's hundreds of years of music to condense into, you know. So I, so I said, Emily, how do you feel about a part D? Part dos. <laughs> and she was like, Thank you. Yes. So we're going yes. to talk more about, get, get dive even deeper into the worlds of lagers and ales and... Mm-hmm. The Baroque era, the classical era, and the Romantic era, in that order. That's the order in which they came. That's the order in which we'll hear them. Let's do it. So a few hallmarks of the Baroque era, kind of sort of giveaways we're going to talk about today. Um, we're going to focus on really two things, ornamentation and sequencing. Ornamentation like decorating a tree? Yeah. <laughs> ornamentation? Like decorating a note ornamentation. Ooh, okay. So instead of just uh, like la, 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 you might hear La 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 pa pa. Ah, okay, like trills or something. Trills, yeah, they have all kinds of names. There's like appoggiaturas and mordants. You hear that a lot in. Ensemble music even. I mean, it was like even in orchestral Baroque instrumental music, you would hear ornamentation. Mm -hmm. 
you would hear ornamentation and singing too. So you know, it's it's a it was a thing. And okay, and sequencing. What what is sequencing? Like one, two, three, four is a sequence of numbers, mm-hmm. and then so with sequencing, what happens? And the best in the world example of sequencing is the Gloria part from Angels We Have Heard on High, where it goes Gloria, right? Yeah. So <laughs> la 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 is repeated down a step. La 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 okay. is repeated down a step. La 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 la. Okay. Okay. So that's a sequence. up a step as well. It can be, it's just stepwise yep. motion, repeating that sequencing. little, yep, sequencing that. Mm-hmm. So who who did you decide on to highlight those? We are going to hear a movement from a suite by a composer named Johann Fosch. And yeah, let's listen to it. And why did you choose this specific composer to demonstrate like, what are we going to listen for? We are going to hear sequencing, and we're going to hear ornamentation in an entire ensemble, which is kind of fun. There is it going like, to be better than you just singing Gloria? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> just making sure that was pretty, was pretty tops in my book. There's a lot of trills, there's a lot of ornamentation, there's a lot mm-hmm. of sequencing in the Broke era. That's someone's giveaway. If they if they didn't it can be. If they didn't tell you that on the radio or you didn't know that, you would hear that and that would be a possible giveaway that we're yeah, in the Broke I mean, era. Generally speaking, hearing a prominence of harpsichord in here for one thing mm-hmm. is is a big giveaway. Yeah. You know, and we've talked over and over again about how you do hear harpsichord creeping into the classical era. So that can be uh, that can trick you. But we also talked about I noticed that this is like it's very like cut apart instead of being more fragmented instead of it being more elegant and fluid, which would bring us sequencing and just Sing, just sing along to it. Try that. You know what I mean? Right. Okay. So it's sequencing. That was a good one. Sequence. Also, the energy to it. And you, know? you also mentioned something like terrace dynamics, that that's another part of Baroque music. Yep. We hear all these, 
You know, it'll be yeah. quiet, and then it'll be loud, and then it will be loud again. It won't. It's not. Yeah. Just like There's, this. You don't see crescendos. Cres- yeah. Yeah. So you can look at a piece of music. Crescendo and just meaning a gradual. By visual clues. Yep. Crescendo being a gradual, uh, getting louder, or decrescendo gradually getting quieter. Um, but you can like look at a piece of music and tell what era it's from. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can get clues from the key signature. You can get clues from the time signature. You know, you're not going to see anything in 5-8 time signature in the Baroque era. That just wasn't <laughs> wasn't a thing. Hmm. Everything was in a duple meter or a triple meter or some kind of compound meter. So, so we're talking things that are in 2, 1, 2, 1, 2, or 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 4. There's no 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 1, 2, 3, 4. There's none of okay. that. There's nothing in 7. There's, you know, there's no alternating meters like you see coming into later in the Romantic era where composers start mixing things up. So instead and what about, of having— like, what about like minuet and trio? And like the actual like waltz, minuet, and trio, when words does that fall matter. So words like minuet and trio, that minuet and trio was important in the Baroque era, but it was also important in the classical era. Okay. Not so much in the Romantic era. Okay. So, you know, yep. y- yeah. Gotcha. So you. words, all kinds of things. But going back to the whole terrace, terraced dynamics, you know, you're not going to see a crescendo written on a page in a Baroque thing. And a crescendo looks like a sideways V. Basically, it's just an elongated, uh, greater than, less Less than than. symbol. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, uh, yeah, you you can see clues like that. Terrace dynamics being uh, like if you think of a terraced garden, how there are – it's not a gradual thing. It's like there's a drop for a foot and then a step and then a drop for a foot and then a step or however the Mm -hmm. terracing is working, right? It's it's an – so that's where the phrase comes from, terraced dynamics, where you hear – the orchestra play loud and then soft and then loud and then soft or however it is in the music right so to recap I would say what what I'm what I'm gleaning from this is we've got terrace dynamics as a great signature of the Baroque era. Yeah, we've got the element of the harpsichord. Yeah. We've got um, it's hard to sing to the melody. Yeah, it's, it can it's be. you know it's kind it of all be. kind of all over the place. There are all kinds of beautiful baroque melodies that are easy to sing, but in instances of instrumental music like this, sometimes it can be a little complicated. And then there's the um, we've got the ornamentation, the trills mm-hmm. as such. And then we've got um, the sequencing, yes. the up, the down, yes. the up. So 
those are some important things in the Baroque era. I did mention earlier that I would explain continuo, and all I'm going to say about that is that it's a really advanced and specific way to play a bass line. And if you want to know more about that, just ask or Google it. <laughs> Watch a YouTube video. It's amazing. And, and it was a super important in the Baroque era. And um, you oftentimes hear a really busy bass line in the Baroque era, which will uh, hear the opposite of that in the classical era. So it's pertinent. But in any event, cool. beer me. Beer you. Yes. So... We talked uh, in our in Crash Course Part 1 about the difference between an ale and a lager. And the main issue is yeast. Yeast that ferment at higher temperatures at a faster pace. Those are usually ale yeasts. Um, and they also, sometimes they're referred to as top fermenting yeasts in a way that you can remember that. I, I mentioned in the last episode is top is three letters and then so, you know, ale is three letters. And being top fermenting, you know, the temperature's a bit more rapid and you have like more esters, more compounds, more smells and aromatics coming off of yeasts. Texture too and, and different like... You know, your your head retention and all these different things about proteins and beer, a lot of that has to do with yeasts as well. But we're mainly talking about the yeasts are the one of the big denominations that create the differences. And mm -hmm. so lager yeast, they're, they ferment at cooler temperatures. It takes longer in general to ferment a, a, a lager. And due to these lager yeasts, they end up being a lot of times bottom fermenting yeasts, so they will create more of a neutral beer. So think of like your your macro lagers of the world or your finer lagers of the world. Clean, crisp, refreshing, um, with not a lot of esters or compounds that, I mean, you really have to smell three of them next to each other to smell the difference because they're all going to be in a similar category. Um, whereas if you smell three just different ales, Mm -hmm. you're probably you're likely to get a lot more of a definition and distinction between the three ales. So, so ales are smellier than lagers. Yes. Okay. They're smellier overall. And so I brought three different three um because it's easy to say Guinness is a stout and a stout is an ale and to <laughs> say Bud Light is a lager and lagers, you know, and, yeah. and that's it's it's much easier to take a dark beer and say this is a lager. And this is why this dark beer is a lager, because you don't mm -hmm. have a lot of those. The sour beers right now, they're all the rage. Uh, so I brought a sour beer that's an ale, but it's very light in alcohol. Normally, I think most of the world would just assume that you say ale, and that means it's heavier bodied, maybe darker. Um, not always the case. And then I brought a very lightly colored and light bodied ale, also known as a Kolsch. So we'll taste the three of those, and I think, I don't know, which one do you want to start with, Emily? Um, let's start with the least flavor first. Got you. Perfect. Okay, so in that sense, we will start with uh, the Sooner Kolsch, um, which surprisingly, it's an ale, and it's the lightest beer here. Is Kolsch usually a lager? No. Kolsch is an ale. Always. Um, yes, except for the fact that right now in, in the entire world of beer, there are a lot of people that are making Kolsch style beers, but they're making like a hybrid of sorts. Like they'll either call it a Kolsch and maybe it's a 
lager because it's light. Maybe they're using a, a typical Kolsch ale yeast, and then it's more correct. What happens with a Kolsch is, first of all, that has to be made, in order to be a true Kolsch, it needs to be brewed in Köln or Cologne, mm -hmm. which in northern, Germany. northern Germany. And the first mention of a Kolsch, I think, was like in the mid-1800s. This actually is one of the first breweries to actually brew a Kolsch beer, a uh, Sooner Kolsch. Neat. And this is 4.8% alcohol, and they're using an ale yeast, but they're fermenting it at cool temperatures, low, slow ferment. So what you're getting is a quite complex beer, but that drinks with an incredible amount of lift and, and, and poise, which is super fun. The typical glass that you would drink a Kolsch out of is, is called a, like a stange or a stange, um, and it's like a little flute tube glass, and it's so cool in Germany. Basically, the server will walk around with um, like a tray of these filled flutes, mm -hmm. and basically you just have to, if you don't have your coaster on your glass, they will refill you, tick off that you've had another beer on your coaster, and the only reason you're not going to get topped up or, or given a new glass is if you've put your coaster on top, which is great. <laughs> Just keep it coming in cold, uh, which is great. So you'll notice, I'll get this poured here before we chat. So comment on the color, Ms. Emily. Uh, it's very light golden. Yep. Do you notice, is there a little touch of haze? Yes. So usually um, Kolsch's are unfiltered, um, but because they've fermented at cool temperatures, that has has settled out, so they're able to to bottle it or, or keg it without um, actually filtering it. I give it a little smell. It smells like, um, you know, like it's wings night at the local bar. Love it. Okay, so we cracked open a surly hell next to the Sooner Kolsch so that... Um, Emily could see, so we could both see and taste the difference, but for sure smell the difference between oh wow, a lager and an ale, but they're both light. That Hellas lager. Does that smell more like Wings Night? Yes. Okay. So Kolsch's are a lot of, uh, you know, I would say the majority of beer fans but that may not be super embedded in exactly what a Kolsch is or the world of beer, yeah. would assume that if they were to have a Kolsch and not have anything else around, that it smells like wings and beer night, which why would they not? It's light. It smells kind of neutral. But when you smell it next to a lager, mm -hmm. it does have a bit more of like bread yeast aromas as opposed so to something that's kind of like yeah. metallic or that has some of those yeah. sulfur compounds that we talked about in Crash Course 1, like, you know, paper... Matchstick. Yeah, it smells the ale smells much breadier. Yeah. So now give give this a taste first. The hell. The Hellas Lager. Okay, the Surly Hell. Surly, a fine brewer here in the state of Minnesota. Now taste Kolsch. Kolsch is one of my favorite styles of beer because if people are doing it right, you could easily guzzle it, but you have to be careful not to. And it really gives you something to think about because there is it is one of the hardest styles of beer to make. Look at how bready, how different. It's like sugary almost. Well, there's um, up next to this, like like maltier almost, like a like actual residual sugar or like a multi factor. Um, let me just have a tiny shot and again, I won't take a normal ER drink. 
gosh, now go back to that hell. That hell tastes like, as much as I love Surly Hell, it kind of tastes like beer water compared to the Kolsch. The Kolsch has like oh, a big time. more malt flavor characteristic, mm-hmm. more it's yeast characteristic. Like bacony. Yeah, the Surly Hell. Yeah. Yeah. Weird. Yeah, it has more like, when I taste the Sooner Kolsch, it has more of like, you know, when you get down to the end of your cereal, you've got the milk, mm-hmm. and that milk is sweet. Yeah. This tastes like sweet wort. Like before you actually make beer and you have to make the cereal water first. Yeah. The the wort before you add the That's yeast. That's what it's called? Be- it's called wort. Yeah. When you, after you take your ground up um, grains and you, you, you grind them up so there's more surface area of water to grain ratio. Mm-hmm. Before you add your yeast and your hops and all your goodies, you have wort. And that wort is basically cereal water. And this tastes way more of like sweet cereal water than, yeah. than the other one. Yes. Right? Yes. Kolsch, ladies and gentlemen. Kolsch. Not in lager, even though it drinks like one. But once you've had it and you've had the correct, a correct um, Kolsch, you'll never think it's a simple beer again, you know? It's like <laughs> so refreshing and at the same time gives you so much to think about. Yeah. Okay, so opinions, thoughts on that Kolsch? I thought it was delicious. Did uh, you? I, I loved it. I would love to have that, you know, especially like you're bonfiring out in the backyard. You got some meat of some sort on the grill. Imagine like a great quality like bratwurst or great yeah. quality like Any, yeah. ham hock or something like that, smoked ham. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. What, that would be um, delicious. Well, so now that we've talked about a light ale, kind of the antithesis of what most people would think of for – and the reason I showed this was I just think it's more interesting than yeah. taking a classic example that we all know is an ale mm-hmm. and showing that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how? What's a good segue? We're going to talk about what the classical era next. We are okay. Um, I'm not so sure that there is a good segue. The classical era is my least favorite era. Okay. <laughs> all right, um, I didn't and know I that. love it all the same. I love it very, very much. Uh, I and I mean that. Uh, you know, it's what's your favorite era is like. Well, what? Who's your favorite pet or child? You know, I mean, really, I love it all, but. Um, to me, the, the classical era is like simultaneously interesting and fascinating and boring as hell because things become – it's like they're so into form and by that I mean the roadmap for the music. So are you going to have – you know, what are you going to do after we hear the melody the first time? Those kind of, Answering those questions and making decisions and those are, you know, form things. Well, we're going to hear a second melody and then we're going to repeat all that. And then we're going to um, take this first melody and mess around with it a little bit. And then we're going to do this. And then we're going to do that. You know, So what's going on in the music? That's the form, right? So the from A to B, how do we get there? And they become so just like it's all about that, that um, th- things just tend to be kind of predictable. And, and you almost have to – boy, I'm going to get slayed for this. But I, I feel like you kind of have to hunt – for the brilliance a little because, not because it's hard to find, let's get that out in the open, it's everywhere, but it's presented in such a semi-predictable and in a lot of ways kind of simplified way 
that it makes it seem like there's not a lot going on. And I know that's what some people love about the classical era. That's probably the argument they would say. It's because it's right in front of your face. You know, that's mm-hmm. the brilliance, you know. But for me, I, I get a little <laughs> I get a little sick of it. <laughs> well, so they, they did talk about, they did talk about, so we, last week we mentioned elegance. Yes. A lot more elegant. Galance. Mm-hmm. So what are we going to talk about this week? First of all, classical era, right around 1750. If you want to go uh, on the starting end a little early, you'd say 1730. And it ends in the early 1800s. Things start changing right around 1800. And then by 1820, we can say, okay, we're not in the classical era anymore. So it's pretty brief. Okay. Definitely less than 100 years more like 50 or 60 wow. if we're really keeping score. So, uh, so, but for just to cover all our bases, we'll say 1730 to 1820, okay. the classical era. In, in the classical era, you hear a very clear melody, a very supportive bass, not a busy bass at all. The bass is very functional uh, and not very active, okay? I tend to think on a whole... Harmonic progressions have slowed down considerably. Okay. Because um, we did, did we, we mentioned something, I think, about like it just being overall less complicated than the Baroque era. Less complicated sounding. Let's okay. say that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying. Because yeah. I, I really don't mean to stomp on the era at all. I mean, obviously, we're talking Mozart, one of the most famous classical era composers, Haydn, Josef Haydn, uh, Haydn's yeah. brother, Michael. Beethoven, in his early life, was a classical composer. He really led the change into the into the Romantic era. That's a whole other episode. Uh, but lots of wonderful things happen in the classical era. Opera starts really coming into its own, and the it, opera was invented in the Baroque era. So by the time we get to the classical era, there's been you know, changes and, yeah. and really great things happening in opera. Uh, the piano is invented finally wow so we're we're not playing harpsichords anymore we're playing pianos or variations on the piano so instead of a harpsichord where to get a sound there's a little uh thing that plucks a string uh every time you hit a key that activates a mechanism that literally plucks the strings so that's a pretty loud sound yeah um you know in a piano the hammer yeah the hammer strikes the string and you can have some your touch matters, right? How hard you touch the key matters yep. how hard the hammer hits. So there's variation in volume there that's coming from a piano, keyboard instrument that's never been really a thing. Okay. Um, so just things things like this are, are happening in the classical era. Also, the Enlightenment, for one thing, in terms of what's happening in Europe, you know, people are thinking about just life in general differently. Yeah. Uh, there are things that uh, are, are ruling the roost, like the symphony. So you see symphony number... You know, 99 by Joseph Haydn, right? <laughs> yep. Um, of course, people wrote lots of symphonies after uh, after the classical era. Another thing that you see a lot of in the classical era is the string quartet. So those are probably the two most important forms outside of whatever's happening vocally speaking. We're not going to touch that right now. Uh, we're talking about the symphony and the string quartet. So I thought we would listen to a movement of a symphony by a composer named Playel. 
that name might be familiar to those of you who are really into piano because Playel manufactured pianos up until about four or five years ago. So that's pretty neat. Uh, and here's a movement from his symphony in F major. And you're going to hear a very just kind of supporting bass. The bass isn't going to be doing much, not moving around like we heard in the last tune where the bass was all over the place. This is going to be nice and chill and just pleasant, predictable. Just pay attention to how the bass really is just kind of hanging out. It's so smooth and flowy. Mm -hmm. And do you also hear how the melody kind of keeps coming back or the a reference to it? Bum, 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 bum. It's... That's a classical era thing, too. Oh, it is. Really okay. focusing on that main melody. Or on one of the melodies from the, yeah. And there's just, rep here, are the, there's repetition a lot, you know? The other thing, too, is just how violin-dominated everything is. Just the violins are controlling the melody. They're controlling everything. I mean... So let's just, for funsies, contrast that with the, the later part of that first piece we listened to by uh, Johann uh, Fosch. Just listen to the bass. And those elbows. Yep. Hear how much movement and motion there is? Yep. <laughs> so let's go back to that classical era one just for the just final nail in I love the uh, coffin of comparison's sake. <laughs> so anyway, that's a fun fun thing to compare to. A little bit of classical era. And again, just so we're 100% crystal on this, I do very much love the classical era. <laughs> Joseph Haydn is in my top five favorite composers of all time. And you will not dominated. get slayed now. Yes. <laughs> I will better yourself. not get slayed. So. <laughs> Still boring. Okay. 
What I would love to showcase next would be another ale, but an ale that doesn't even really flirt past 4.5% alcohol. This is 4.6%. Wow. Then what's the point? I'm just kidding. <laughs> drink eight. Emily, drink eight. No, I'm just kidding. So this is a style of beer called a Goza. And I wanted to bring this because right now in the um, there's a huge craze of sour beers amongst the world of beer, and most of them are kettle sours, quick to market, you know, not really interesting, but they're filling the void of, I don't know, people that want soda pop with raspberry puree and kind of whatever, but it's beer and it's light. Mm -hmm. Um, This is where that could have started, meaning that just that taste for a beer that's got some sourness. And, you know, to, to digress, there was a time where most beer was sour when people okay. didn't know how to control yeasts and, and elect a certain yeast for a desired result, okay. right? But um, this style, the Goza, G-O-S-E, um, originated in Gosler, which was about two hours, give or take, um, via car west of right now where many people would say the home of Goza is, which is Leipzig. And... Uh, Gosler has a stream, kind of a, a, a prominent creek running through it called the Goza Creek, and that's where it gets its name. And it's a style of beer that um, has been around for, for quite some time, um, but they have just recently, like this this producer here that we're going to um, taste called Banoff, there have been people that have been making Gozas for centuries, right? But these guys have really, um, since I think it was like around the 17 or 1800s, this wow. style of beer has been around. Okay. But um, Banoff is known as being one of the best. Um, okay. So I wanted to bring this because this is, if you're going for your beer certification exams, if you're going like for me when I did my sommelier exams, I, you need to be able to taste this and you need to be able to say this is a Goza. Okay. So a Goza is an ale that is using um, a top fermenting yeast, but it's also using lactic acid. Oh. Bacteria, which sours it. Does that mean people who are lactose intolerant can't have it? No. Okay. Don't, don't know me I with just, that tone. It's true. I just I, I, I only say no because I work in a restaurant where everybody's got some sort of allergy and I want to be like, just freaking eat people. Yeah. But yeah, no, th- that's a very valid question. People with lactose issues can drink gozes okay. unless they're gluten-free, which... <laughs> <laughs> in which case you're shit on luck. Yeah. Um, so uh, Goza is made with lactic acid bacteria, which sours it. It's got a, a top fermenting, a warmer fermenting yeast, which allows for those really fun kind of funky esters uh, along with the, of course, the lactic acid bacteria, which sours it. And then you get a um, – they also add salt and coriander. And people go, wow, that's fun and cute. Well, let's just think about functionality, folks, first. Beer back in the day tasted like shit, mm-hmm. or most of the time. It didn't taste yeah. good, so people were adding things to it to make it taste good. Yeah, Salt is a preservative. Water wasn't safe back in the day. Okay, That's likely where this kind of combination of things happened. So Goza always has coriander in it? It in a in a correct goza it wow. should have. There's a producer out of um, they did a collaboration a brewery I think it was out of New Jersey and they collaborated with a brewery in 
Iceland, I want to say, where they did a beer that was done with smoked sea salt. They did it with skir, so instead of adding a lactic acid bacteria, they added straight-up Icelandic yogurt. <laughs> they added moss. It was just like, and it was the cool, it was like my favorite sour beer of the year, like two years or three years ago. But so anyway, uh, here is the Banoff Goza. And you'll notice, again, now we're drinking an ale, but look at the color. It's a little bit more amber. A little darker. Way cloudier. I know, look at that head retention too. It's amazing. It smells soapy almost. Mm, that, uh, to me, it smells kind of, it smells like, Cereal grains. It smells different okay. than the other one, but it smells like grains to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this this really smells like cereal water compared to the last two. Okay. Yes. Ales, people. Ales. They don't necessarily need to be brown or wow. black, but they need to have just now taste the Hellas. Can I pour a little bit of the Hellas into just because this isn't super sour, right? Um, I don't know. It's got a little bit of a sour quality. I think it's got salt in it. You'll notice that on the finish. Mm-hmm. But it's a very cleansing beer. You have this with uh, some mac and cheese with some bacon. You'll be happy you have this beer. Really? A, oh, yeah. But so taste the difference. And just yeast profile. We're hellasing and com- keep comparing and contrasting the Banoff Gozu. I with can't the get over how, this, how bacon-y or something like that this is. This Hellas lager. It's like got some smoked meat thing going on or something. Tasting that again really brings home the coriander component. Like on the finish, you really notice that herb, like cilantro, you know, that herb. Yeah. Wow, I would straight up never order a goza. (laughs) Okay, that's fair. That's totally fair. But do you taste how the I've never tasted anything like that. Yeah, the hell is way more dependent now when we compare and contrast on the hops for refreshment. Mm-hmm. It's like that hot bite if you give it another sip. Yeah. That's what lingers. And here it's like the coriander and the salt lingers. Yeah. And that lactic acid is very toned down. This is a difference between not a kettle sour that's like quick and sour soda poppy beer. Okay. And something that's very subtly sour. Okay. But interesting that this is an ale, huh? That's crazy to me that it tastes like that. I've never tasted anything like that. There's so much beer, by the way, that I've not had. So let's not get too crazy. You may have had a beer like this. But I'm saying I've never had a sour beer until just now. And I don't plan on ordering another one anytime soon. Gozas are one of my favorite styles of beer because they're just – they're a category altogether uh, in the ale bigger category that I think is just um, not really well experienced by by a lot of beer drinkers, like people could say I like sour beers and maybe they mean like Belgian sour or maybe they mean like now there's a huge craze of barrel aging and all these funky Advertanomyces and all this stuff and you've got this really complex, expensive sour beer from Oregon or something and then you've got the cheap kettle sour shit out there that they still sell for seven bucks a pint, which, you know, we all know who's making the money there. The Goza is a style that um, I just... Don't know if it's all that familiar, and then to boot, it's an ale. We don't we th- we think about it as a sour beer category instead of thinking of it as part of the ale family, mm. and um, that's why I wanted to showcase it today because it's light, it's beautiful, and it's the antithesis of what we would think a ale is. It's definitely uh, something I've never had before. Mm. 
No, it kind of tastes like lime, kefir lime leaves, honestly. <laughs> no, on the finish to me. Yeah. Amazing that they put the coriander in there, too, and that that's a thing. I think that as we taste these very cool and kind of romantic styles of beer, I think the Goes is a, some, somewhat of a, a romanticized beer because of how it's made and its history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, romantic era? Romantic era. Bigger, louder, softer, shorter, all of those things. Dramatic. Dramatic. Gayer. Romantic. Gayer. Grander. More sequins. Uh, yes. (laughs) Yes. More sequins. Um, program music, meaning music is often about something. It's not just music for the sake of music. It's music about a mountain or music (laughs) about a relationship or about animals in the forest or the lake or the snowfall or, you know, it's about something. Millennial. Yeah. Instagram worthy. Instagram worthy. Gay. These are some emo. <laughs> sorry, yeah, I these are, <laughs> sorry, I can't help myself. These are some emo fools in the romantic era. Uh, so uh, there's uh, longer pieces. Uh, of course, there's short pieces in the romantic too. Yes, but instead of a 15 minute symphony, we'll have an hour long symphony. <laughs> okay, so we're getting wordy, right? We're getting self indulgent. Is yes how I kind of think of it. More chromaticism, as we've talked about a moment ago, meaning there, you know, if we have a piece in F major, there are certain notes that belong to that scale. And if we're talking about chromaticism, we're talking about adding notes in that don't belong to F major scale. And so there are more of those in the Romantic Lots era. Lots of chromaticism, you know, coming in in the, in the Romantic era. Um, as we also talked about earlier, uh, you can really get some more remote quote-unquote, key signatures that weren't used very often in the Baroque era, and that's because the systems for tuning instruments has changed over the years. Um, You get wackier time signatures toward the end of the 1800s. Composers start messing around with fun stuff like that. Um, Orchestras get bigger. More brass players, more woodwinds, more percussion instruments. Choirs are bigger, you know. It's just grander scale on Mm -hmm. on a lot of ways. Piano has really come into its own as a solo instrument, so you hear words like etude a lot, uh, sonata. uh, Sonata pops up before that, but, uh, you know, just some interesting things, you know. Who did you choose to focus on? I chose, and I love this symphony, um, Robert Schumann. I tried to, and I succeeded in choosing three composers today that we'd never talked about, which I really wanted to. And we didn't really talk about those composers, but I just wanted to broaden the scope from our normal Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven conversation. Yeah, I love it. So I chose uh, one of the the four symphonies that was written by German composer Robert Schumann. This is known as his third symphony. It's actually the last symphony he wrote, so it was written in 1850, not long before he died, just a handful of years before he died. And he named this symphony the Rhenish Symphony. And so it's in a very fast three, so it goes, um, so tempo, we're talking about like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Um, And it's just a, a fun beautiful, lovely symphony in a very happy key. 
from a wonderful man who, until he was uh, fairly advanced in life, only wrote for piano. And then toward the latter part of his life started to write, he wrote four symphonies and uh, all kinds of orchestral music at the, at the end. And a little piece of useless information, but very interesting information for those mm-hmm. of you who love quiz type of you know trivia. trivia. Uh, Felix Mendelssohn that we talked about in our one of our episodes, our most recent episodes, um, conducted this the first time it was premiered. Well, there you go. See, Mendelssohn was a friend to many, and that's one of the reasons I love him so much. He was very good at championing the music of his contemporaries. Love well it. said, Jill Mott. Here's uh, symphony number three in E-flat major. This is the first movement. Uh, This symphony is called the Rhenish Symphony by Robert Schumann. And large and in charge, just... Enter that way. Yeah. I just listened to that right there with the oboe, and it was like, um, it sounded like out of key, even though it was in key. It Mm -hmm. sounded, I don't know if that... We're not, correct. as in we're not in E-flat anymore? Uh, as it, and they were playing notes that didn't sound like it belonged to oh, that set, yeah. the scale that we're, the key we're in right now. Right, yeah. And in the beginning, we went through brief, short little modulations, as they're called. We, we temporarily stepped our toes into other keys okay. several times. And the harm, again, when we talked about in the Baroque era, how quick harmony moves, uh, we're kind of, in, in some ways, we're kind of back to that. You know, things can move a lot more quickly now. Um, we're shifting through, we're briefly touching upon these other keys. And, um, you know, so the horns there, you hear the horns there yeah. with that melody. And then the violins take over. So there's a more shared responsibility there too. The, the basses, Instead of just being supportive, they're also active at times, more melodically active in a way. Very reminiscent of Beethoven there, but... But you can you can definitely tell when we compare this to some Debussy that we've listened to or other, mm-hmm. other um, composers of this era that it is sort of like a lofty in this idea of like... You know, if you can imagine speaking with Schumann in a yeah. cafe, he would talk like this. You know, it'd be yeah. like all like this <laughs> and dramatic. that and all the things, yeah. you know. And so, yeah. Um, uh, another, you know, some of these some of these clues, you know, they're just clues. They're not answers, right? So this symphony has five movements, and that's unusual for a classical era symphony to have more than four movements. Not unheard of but unusual. So there's uh, clues there. You know, um, the nickname can be a clue, but of course, Joseph Haydn, who was uh, uh, one of the most famous classical era composers, many of his symphonies were nicknamed as well, although not by him, never by him from what I understand. So, you know, that's when we're talking about all these clues, it's helpful to remember that, that they're, they're, they're not answers. They're just, they're just clues that might mm-hmm. help you come to a conclusion. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So should we talk about clues and cues 
that help us know what beer we're drinking. Yes. All right. So um, we know that uh, in the world of ales and lagers, we've deciphered color doesn't really matter, and that'll definitely come to play in the next beer we have, right, where we're okay. going to drink a quite dark Colored. lager. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, color doesn't matter. Weight in some way matters. I mean, it's really hard to have a heavy-bodied lager. Um, there are some alcohol-tolerant yeast strains that will let you have an imperial pilsner that's just kind of a ridiculous category. But anyway, <laughs> a 9% alcohol, body, you know, um, lager. lager. Okay. But uh, we know that you can have a very light ale. So if you're having this Goza or you're having a Kolsch and you're not familiar with the difference, you might just assume it's a lager because it's light. Not the case. But keep in mind that when you put it on your palate, if if your retronasal, meaning like after you swallow and you you mm-hmm. kind of taste and let that come back through our nose, mm-hmm. if it's anything other than sort of something neutral and metallic-y, um, a little bit egg yolky, kind of sulfury, matchsticky. You said a little bacony, metallic, mm-hmm. and hot, there's a little bit of bittering hot presence. Okay. Those are all signs that it's probably a lager. Okay. And then if you if it's kind of neutral, anything that makes it not neutral, unless it's spiked with something, yeah, it's m- most likely going to be a an ale. Okay. The other way around. And um, so what's going to be interesting now is when you taste this, because this is a Weissbier Dunkel, which is also one of my favorite categories. And when you start listening to, you know, episode 75 of Scores and Pours, you'll realize everything is my favorite <laughs> because it's there for hopefully a purpose. Um, but so Weissbier, it's a wheat beer, not wheat dominant, but there's a high percentage of wheat in the beer. That is, and people go, I hate vice beers. I hate wheat beers. It's like, well, do you hate that or do you hate when it's banana and clovey? Because that's usually the yeast, <laughs> which would be an ale equivalent, okay. right? So this is um, Cluster Andex, which is a monastery um, in Bavaria. And this is their Weissbier Dunkel, which is a, you've got barley, you've got wheat, but you've got a lager yeast that's used to make a dunkel. Dunkel means dark in German. And you're left with this beer that's right around 5% alcohol, so light. Um, it's per- This is heavier than Guinness, you okay. know, but it's a lager. Yeah. Pouring this guy here. Pardon me. Check out this head retention. My goodness. And look it's, at half how, the gla- it's more than half the glass. Look at that. Look at that color. So dark. So this is... Very um, ambery. Yeah. Too. Like 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 dark like burnished copper almost. But look at how if you were to be served that in a bar, you'd be like, "What a fine ale I'm drinking!" If you looked at it, and it's like, "No, no, it's just a lager." So these guys, um, they've been brewing beer for uh, quite quite a long time. Actually, they've been a pilgrimage site in Bavaria since the late 1500s. Or actually, excuse me, since the 1400s, they've been a pilgrimage site. But what do you think? Give it a smell. So they're using Bavarian wheat, some Hollertau hops. But what's cool here is how beautiful of like a crisp mouthfeel and you've got like bright body, but it's not heavy. There's nothing heavy about this beer. It's like a lager par excellence. Are you smelling it and going, that's clovian banana because it's a wheat beer? No. no. You're smelling like caramel malts. You know, it smells kind of caramely a little bit, but you're really allowing those malts to show through because your yeast strain is a lager 
cooler fermenting, not flamboyant, not romantic era, <laughs> yeast strain. Yeah. Malts. Yeah. Hello, malts. <laughs> and this is one of the things I love so much about lagers is that they can be really diverse, you know? Yeah. Cheers. Do you like it? Are you into it? Is it not your favorite? I know you got to kind of chug past all that that head. I like it. Imagine this with some skin on potatoes with some bacon on the top. Yeah, exactly. Yes. It's exactly what I want with that. Purpose. You know what? Clean up your mouth. <laughs> Doesn't matter if your lager's dark or if it's light. It's going to clean up the situation on the palate. Yes. Certainly. And refresh as well. Delicious. Um, I would have a. I would drink a, happily drink a beer like this in the summertime. Yeah. Because even though it's got a... I wouldn't want a ton of them, though. Yeah, but you could probably um, get through two and not realize it yeah. because it's refreshing. Yes. I would like to try it just the slightest bit colder. I feel like I would like it a little better. It would be... The look I just got. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the look I just got. Well, the thing is, is you would, it would, you'd be able to drink it faster. Like it would be, quote unquote, more refreshing. Yeah. But you would, the smell of the malts. Yeah. Um, go do it right now. Put it in the freezer, you are. Olha que coisa mais linda, mais cheia de graça. Ela menina que All right, so I did as you asked. Put it in the freezer. It was in there for 10 minutes. And now we're going to compare these side to side. Smell? Let me smell them side by side. Oh, weird. Okay. What does the cold one smell like to you? Uh, let me smell it again. Case in point. <laughs> when it's cold. It doesn't smell as good. <laughs> yeah, well, you can't. Um, a lot of people, you know, for good reason, want their beer cold because it's refreshing, but you can't smell anything. So what's really cool about beer when it's well done is it smells really good and you don't want it so cold. Well, that's crazy. I mean, it obviously tastes better, the warmer beer. Yeah. <laughs> ER's like frustrated. <laughs> I'm like annoyed. <laughs> not, at, yes. not, at, not, at, not about. You can be annoyed at me. That's not fine. At, definitely not at all about you. It just, um, you just think, you know, a nice cold beer. I'm like, well, yeah, that's great, but it's not as good as a nice warm beer. Well, or a nice, like, warm. cellar temperature. Yeah, because this is chilled. You know, it's, it's not. They've been out of the fridge for an hour and seven minutes now. Yeah. So give that one more try. I mean, the palate is not bad. On the cold one, you just can't really smell anything, and it just sort of tastes like refreshing beer. It doesn't. Mm -hmm. It doesn't taste like we've paid six dollars for this dunkel. Well, dunkel, seriously. <laughs> um, and also, when you swish it, you get like the esters of the wheat, and you get the esters of the yeast, yeah. and you get. All right. Well, we've successfully crashed some courses here. Beer doesn't need to be cold. True. <laughs> Eras deciphered, lagers and ales crushed. Color doesn't matter. Just scores and pours. Scores and pours. Thank you for listening to episode 24 of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scores and pours and Instagram at Scores and Pours. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scores and pours. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. And I'm Paul Beach. 
Scores and Pours is a production of June Media, Inc.